All right. We are so blessed by our people here at East Point. And Gary, you've been such a blessing to us. And I just know God sent you here for a reason. And so thank you for sharing that, Gary. Gary does so many behind-the-scenes things, like so many people here at East Point. I'm glad that he was able to share that only God can story with us. And so thank you for being bold, Gary, and, uh, and coming up front here and sharing. Uh, we're, we're, uh, started, we started a series last week called The All-In Family, and Dustin shared a little bit about that all-in family. We have to be cross-bearers. So we have to be all-in and confess Christ and, 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 and bear that cross if we're going to have that all-in family. And today we're going to be talking about the transformed family, and we're going to be looking at Mark 9, 2 through 13, and it's the transfiguration of Jesus. And what is that all about? Hopefully we'll answer some of those questions this morning. But we're going to get right into the text. Uh, Mark 9, 2 through 13. And it says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There, were, there he was transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put three shelters, put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to, what it, what to say, and they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Now, when Dustin told me that I was to relate that passage, that scripture, the transfiguration of Jesus to the family, I thought, how am I going to do that? What part of Jesus' clothes, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, screams family? I know in our family, we have the exact opposite. The clothes are always dirty. And um, I told my son one time at a he came home from a baseball game, and his baseball uniform was clean. I said, you can't have played a good game, Brooks, if your uniform is clean. And so the next game I saw him out there, first thing, he's rolling around in the mud, which is one of his great talents to get dirty. I know that it was, he gets it, he gets it honestly, I'll just tell you that. But the first thing that came to my mind whenever I thought transfiguration and family was this, was that when Jesus turned so white. See, whenever Audrey and I became parents with the birth of our daughter Avery, and Audra was in labor for almost 30 hours, can you imagine? And I was right there with her the whole time. And there was a point in that last hour or two, just intense labor, that I got physically 
ill. I turned white as a ghost and I needed to excuse myself and I proceeded to the bathroom and lost all my cookies right there. All right, it was a tough experience. And Avery, Audra was a little... Audra was a little upset. She's like, where's my husband? What happened to him? She was asking nurses. And who knows what name she was calling me in that moment. It was pretty intense. But I want you to know that it is tough. No one ever talks about what the guys go through in that labor process. The woman gets all the attention, all right? They get all the medication and all the drugs. But where are the drugs for the guys? Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness out there? All right, good, good job. You did not take the bait there. I asked for an amen last service, and I got booze instead from a few of the women. All right, I just want to let you know. It's the first time a, a preacher's ever asked for amen and got booze. But, uh, and no one took that bait. Thank you for that, all right? You'd be in big trouble, all right? To paint myself as the hero in that moment is, is not very smart uh, at all. 30 hours of labor. And for my wife, it was nine months of morning sickness as well. It's kind of like in my, my favorite sports moment of all times when the Cavaliers won the NBA championship. And it would be like me going up to LeBron James and saying, remember how awesome we were in that NBA championship in those finals, how we beat the Golden State Warriors, and then giving him my autograph. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense at all. And getting back to our text, the transfiguration. I think that's a lot, of, a lot of times how people feel about what's going on in this text. What's going on here? What's this all about? It just doesn't make sense. And as I dug into scriptures these past couple weeks into this scripture, I couldn't believe all the richness that I found in there, all the correlation as well that can relate to the all-in family. And as we open up the text, it starts off with this. Six days later. Six days later, and it begs that question, what happened six days prior to Jesus' transfiguration? Well, six days prior to the transfiguration, Jesus asked this penetrating question of his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples gave various answers. He said, some say that you're John the Baptist, and by that, this time, John the Baptist was dead, and, and um, he was such a great religious and powerful uh, religious figure that some, including the person that, uh, that killed him, thought that Jesus uh, was John raised from the dead. Others said Jesus was Elijah. You see, the prophet Malachi said Elijah would return to usher in this messianic age. And so some people thought that Jesus was Elijah preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And finally, others said, well, he's just a prophet. Just a prophet. Then Jesus stopped them and asked them this top button question. I like to call it the top button question because if you don't get this question right, nothing else is going to line up. Nothing else is going to make sense. But who do you say I am? Jesus asked them. And Peter replied, Well, I say that you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that great confession of faith that Peter said first. Now, in so many ways, the transfiguration answered that question, who do you say that I am? And basically, Jesus is saying, just come to the mountaintop. Don't just take my word for who I am. Let me show you who I am. Because Jews... Because the Jews of Jesus, they were waiting for 
the Messiah, but they believed that Messiah would come and overcome, overtake the Roman, uh, Roman uh, kingdom and reestablish that Davidic kingdom. And, and, with, and it would, uh, Israel would be triumphant overall. But that wasn't what Jesus came to do. And Jesus tried to correct their messianic expectations. You see, in order to accomplish that mission, he had to suffer. He had to die, and he had to rise again. And that message the disciples wanted uh, was a message that the disciples didn't want to hear. They didn't want to hear about a suffering and dying Messiah. Nor did they want to hear about how they would have to suffer as well. Last week, Dustin shared those verses that Jesus Jesus talked about what their responsibility is. If you want to be a disciple, you must deny yourselves. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus' audience didn't want to hear about the painful and shameful death that they they would have to be willing to overcome, to endure. And these are definitely some of the most challenging words that Jesus shared while he was here on this earth. And these were tough words for those that knew him best, that loved him most, that confessed him as Christ, that believed that he was the son of the living God. And so six days later, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John and his three closest disciples, the inner circle, as they are called, to come and be a witness into who Jesus was. It isn't just do as I say, but come. I want to show you. I want you to experience this with me. And this is such an important point. If we want to raise a family that knows and loves Jesus, we need to make sure that we invite those that are closest, those that we love, those that are um, our responsibility into our walk with Christ. If we want a transformed family, we need to invite others into our faith. We just started a baptism class, Christianity 101. And one of the first questions I asked them is this, what does it look like to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? And the kids really nailed it. And they shared things like a Christian serves and loves God. A Christian loves God and puts him first. A Christian forgives and is kind. A Christian is involved in the church and reads their Bible and prays. A Christian is Christ-like. And they follow Christ. A Christian will and needs to live out their faith. In James 1.22, it says, For don't merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And even the kids that, uh, and even kids know that following Christ isn't just something that we say, but something that we live out, something that we do. They will know that we are Christians by our what? by our love. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But here is a sobering statistic about our church youth of today and and how we're doing in passing on our faith. The Fuller Institute reports this. It reports that five out of ten church youth are leaving the faith whenever they leave the home. Fifty percent. And there's even worse certificates Uh, statistics from Lifeway Press, it says that um, 60% will drop out of the faith and the church whenever they go off to college. And Barner Research is even worse that they say that 7 out of 10 will leave the faith whenever they leave the home. 
And regardless of which one is most accurate, any of these numbers are scary. And we here at East Point are not okay with these numbers, and neither should you be. And these statistics aren't linked to a failing youth group. They're not linked to a failing church. They're not linked to a failing children ministry. But rather, they're linked to parents who only live out a Sunday faith. And a more encouraging statistic is this. 80% of church youth who experience prayer time, devotions, and worship time at home, their kids will stay in the church. They will embrace their faith whenever they leave the home. It's that simple. If you invite your children into your mountaintop experience with Christ, if you invite them into your calling with Jesus Christ and how you're living out that commitment to call, you have an 80% chance that your kids will stay in the faith whenever they leave the home. And in 2 Peter 1 we see how important it was for Jesus to invite Peter, James, and John into his mountaintop experience. And in Second Peter, Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, and he's given account to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he says this in Second Peter, he says, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with them on that sacred mountain. And you tell me, you tell me how important it was for Jesus to invite Peter and James and John up to the mountain on that day. What an impact it made apologetically for Peter. It was vitally important to their faith. A couple weeks ago, our leadership met with Gary Johnson and the E2 elders. And we talked about strategic planning for East Point for the next three years. And I want you to know that our leadership all agree that to be the church that we are called to be, one of our pillars in the church needs to be that we make the next generation a priority. And what does that look like? We are so excited that Melanie Ringel is going to come and be our children's pastor. We're excited about her coming. We already have, we have so many great youth leaders and children's leaders and a great preschool but it was consensus from everyone that the parents have the greatest opportunity to, to make the greatest impact in a child's life and that we are to come alongside and partner with them. The greatest way East Point can impact that next generation for Christ is to encourage, equip, and empower the parents to be that primary faith influence in their children's life. And the Bible is clear that it is the parents' responsibility to teach these teach their children in the areas of faith. It says to train up a child in the way they should go, and they, when they are old, they will not depart from it. We have all had those mountaintop experiences with Christ which, where he revealed himself to us, those experiences that have changed our lives, changed our direction, and changed our hearts, those only God-can moments. And how are we inviting those that we love most into those 
experiences in our lives? How are we inviting them to pursue Christ and his calling? And how are we exemplifying that calling? The question isn't, who do you love? But the real litmus test is to ask those that are under your care, your children, who you love. And that's a scary question. Are you willing to ask that question of your children and who would they say? I would say that you need to know that answer. Who you love, who your children would say that you love. In Mark 9, not only did Jesus invite Peter, James, and John into this mountaintop experience as he reveals his divine nature, but suddenly he was accompanied by Moses and Elijah. And there is definitely great significance in Moses and Elijah being there. Not only does it echo Exodus and the mountaintop experience of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, receiving the law on Mount Sinai. But Malachi prophesied that Elijah would return to usher in the Messianic age. Elijah's appearance is another sign of Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the two of them together represented all the law and all the prophets bearing testimony to Jesus as the true Messiah. And Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus about his departure about his death, and he was, that he was a, to accomplish in Jerusalem. And so they confirmed those words that Jesus spoke to his disciples about suffering and death and resurrection. Now I want you to know this, that a transformed family, there's got to be truth, there's got to be law, but there's also got to be grace, and there's got to be love. There's got to be law and love. In Malachi 4, 4 through 6, both Moses and Elijah are mentioned in this passage. And listen to this. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Mount Sinai for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and great and dreadful day of the Lord, that the Lord comes. He will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Did you hear that? Moses represents the law, the truth, the discipline, but Elijah will usher in this messianic age that will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, or else, or else there will be destruction. There will be total destruction. In some versions it says parents, but in the, but in the word in Hebrew is ab, which means father and just about every time that it's used in the in the old testament Uh, not that this does not apply to mothers but about halfway through the week i just felt like i was supposed to talk to the fathers for a moment because after the birthing process your job becomes significantly more crucial In the book, The Sticky Faith Guide for Your Family, Dr. Kara Powell says this. It says, in evangelical Protestant families, 46% of children who feel not close to their fathers report that they have adopted the same faith as their their parents, 46%. But for 
but for children in evangelical Protestant families who feel close to their fathers, the rate jumps to 71%. It's a 25% gap. And that gap in faith adoption dwarfs the 1% gain in faith adoption between children who feel close to their mothers and those who feel not close to them. And fathers, maybe today I'm speaking to the choir. But I want you to know that God has designed you to be the spiritual leader of your family. And some of us men need to step up. And I'll say it a little bit stronger. Some of us men need to man up. And live out the responsibility that God has put on our lives to be the visual representation of the character of God. I love the movie Courageous. Men, if you have not seen the movie Courageous, you need to watch that. Watch it tonight. You need to see it. But the father goes through a tragic death and his, uh, tra- through a tragic death of his daughter, and he just comes to the realization that he's wasted so much time as a father. His friends try to console him and tell him, hey, you've been a good enough father. You've provided for your family. You've loved your family. And he responds to them, I don't want to be just a good enough, good enough father. I want to know exactly what God expects of me. Fathers, now might be a time to step out if you think, hey, I'm good enough. I'm doing all right as a father. And I know, I know that I'm not worthy to speak this truth into anyone's life, but I do, I sure do care for my kids' eternity. I care for your kids' eternity. And I know so many fathers out there that also care for your kids' eternity. But as fathers, we are going to be held accountable to God for the position of influence that he has put us in, that he has given to us. As fathers, God declares for us to do whatever it takes to be involved in the lives of our children. As father, God des- desires that we protect our children, discipline our children, and we, we are to teach them about God and the matters of faith. As fathers, there should be no question in your children's mind who you love. It should be, they should say without hesitation that you love God, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, that you love their mom and that you love them. And in that order, as fathers, it is our responsibility to walk in integrity and live out that calling that God has put on our lives to serve him and to serve the church and to share Christ with the world. And as fathers, it is our responsibility to pray for and to bless our children to boldly pursue God's calling on their lives. And we can only do that if we pursue our children and seek to win their hearts with, with our love and affection. And I'll say that again. And we can only do that if we pursue our children and seek to win their hearts with our love and affection. I've heard too many times, I am their father, I'm not their friend. I'm their parent, I'm not their friend. And I'm sure if I said that with enough authority, I'm sure I'd get some amens here tonight, but it's not the message of the Bible. And I get it. 
I get it. I know we're supposed to discipline our children. We, we, we hold it a, a higher role than just friend for sure. But if we look at John and who was with Jesus on that mountaintop, and we find that for Jesus, friendship is the ultimate form of love. As the ultimate relationship with God and to one another. John, Jesus says in John 15, he says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. He invited them into his life, into his heart. He invited them onto that mountaintop for a reason. Come and see, come and be a part of my business. Greater love is no one than this, than the lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And you can say it a little differently this way, and I know that I've shared this before, but it is so important and so in line with God's calling for us as parents to know this. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. That authoritative parent is my way or the highway. As long as you're living under my roof, you'll follow my commands. And I say absolutely, but buyer beware. Without love, this will likely lead to rebellion. Relationship without rules leads to recklessness. This is that permissive parent. Hey, you don't want to clean your room today? I know that you've had a rough day. No problem. And this leads to recklessness or chaos. It's hard to tell who the parent is in this relationship, and we risk losing the authority to speak into their life. We risk losing having the influence over them that God has put into, our, into that relationship. But rules with relationship leads to respect. And if you're having problems at home, it's probably because one or both of these are out of whack. In order for us to have the greatest opportunity to pass along our faith, to have an all-in transformed family and to gain respect of our children, there must be rules and there must be relationship. There must be truth. And there must be grace. There must be friendship and there must be directorship. There must be love and there must be discipline. And these would be great rules for any parent to live by. But in closing, there is only one thing that's really going to matter 100 years from now, and that's your children's faith. Only their relationship with Jesus Christ is going to matter. And if you desire a transformed family for Jesus Christ, your faith must be first. They must be able to see your faith. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Moses gathers all of Israel together and he shares these words. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your grates. And I'm talking about all the time. I want you to carry your faith with you. Invite your kids into that experience. Invite your kids into that mountaintop that you have with Jesus Christ. And it is the whole point of the message today. If we want to see our family transformed for Jesus Christ, our lives need to be transformed for Christ, and we need to invite them in to witness that transformation. 
Moses tells us in, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, what does he say? He says, love God first. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts before it says to impress them onto your children. The all-in family starts with an all-in faith that is shared and lived out all the time because faith isn't taught, it's caught. Faith isn't taught, faith is caught. It wasn't long ago I heard this one time, that if you want to be happy for an hour, go to your favorite restaurant. If you want to be happy for a day, go indulge in your favorite hobby. If you want to be happy for a week, take a vacation to somewhere you really enjoy going. But if you want to be happy for a lifetime, invest in your family. Spend time with them. Try forgiveness out with those that you love. Lead with grace. Be intentional with your family. Love your family. And we know that we serve a good God, a loving God, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be with him forever. We're just passing through. Our citizenship does not lie here on this earth, but in heaven. And if you're like me, and know that this lifetime is too short for the ones that you love most. I'd say this, if you want to be happy for eternity, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put him first in your life. And do not keep it to yourself. Invite those that you love into that mountaintop experience and share that with them. We can take our cars, we can take our houses, we can't take our cars, we can't take our houses, we can't take our power or our position or our money or our possessions, but we can take those that we love and those that we're closest to. And it starts with Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you here have never had that mountaintop experience. You've never put Jesus Christ number one, and you know that calling is on your heart today. Or maybe you're just a mom or a dad, and you know that you need some changes. You say, I need, I need help. I need prayer. I just invite you to come forward for the service and come talk to, to me or one of the, the leaders here love to point you in the right direction. We'd love to help you. We'd love to be there for you, to encourage, to equip, and empower you. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for how you've spoken to us this morning through that mountaintop experience that James and John and Peter got to experience in person. I know that each one here, you have a calling on their lives to be there with you as well. To put your son Jesus Christ first in their lives. God, there's an added responsibility for those that wear the name mom or dad 
aunt or uncle, grandma, grandpa, or even friend. You've called us to, to live out your calling and to invite others into that calling as well and to make that calling a priority. We are going to be held accountable to how we live that out. We thank you. It's a privilege to be called mom, to be called dad, grandma, grandpa. Help us to do it in a way that's pleasing to you. We know that kids' eternity rests on that. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and what he means to us. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.